0: morning.
1: Uh,
0: What a blessing it is that uh, so many boxes are out there. Um, I don't know who brought that uh, shoe box that was like for boots, but if I was a little kid about to receive that, I'd be like, I want the one that the boots come in. I mean, that's like twice the size, you know, Um, but that's, that's neat. Praise the Lord. Uh, Keep on uh, bringing those boxes. And we got to the 14th uh, and then they're going to go off. They go to another church. And then they get packed up and then they go, I think, to Dallas. Uh, so, um, and these are great opportunities uh, that we can be involved in missions. And uh, so uh, pray how you can be involved in, in, um, in this project. We're in Matthew chapter uh, 26, Matthew chapter 26. And we'll be reading from verses uh, 47 all the way to 56. Matthew chapter 26. Uh, 47 through 56, if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. The Word of God says, While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the priests and elders of the people. Now he was uh, betraying him, gave them a sign, saying, Whoever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who uh, were with Jesus reached out and drew out his sword and struck the slave uh, of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you, uh, do you think that uh, I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? At that time Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me? Uh, as you would against a robber. Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Father, as we look at this text now, I pray that it won't just be to understand this as an exercise in of itself, but that we'll get to know you better, that uh, we'll apply this to become more like Christ and less like ourselves. And Father, that we can even use this text in other people's lives to help them grow. I pray now that uh, your Spirit would illumine our minds and convict our hearts and show us those areas that we need to change. Father, I pray that the Spirit would also encourage our hearts and, and, and uh, motivate us to continue doing where we have been obeying. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. How how would you uh, treat a traitor? How would you treat a traitor? Well, uh, Ashraf Marwan, he was the son-in-law to the former president of Egypt, Nasser. Uh, He tipped off Mossad that there was going to be a surprise attack on Yom Kippur in 1973. He told them that uh, this was going to happen, and Israel was prepared, they were ready. And how Egypt thought the battle was going to go didn't quite end up that way. Uh, Then in 2003 it came out that uh, he had tipped off Israel, and in 2007 Marwan decided to uh, jump off the balcony of his apartment in London. Uh, Some of the family think that uh, he did not commit suicide, but uh, rather... Uh, he was killed by Egyptians uh, for his role in the Yom Kippur 1973 war. It would make sense, right? I mean, what do you do with a traitor? Do you, you don't give him a parade, do you? I mean, you don't take him back and say, Yay, he made us lose. What, what do you do with a traitor? Now, we're going to see a context where Jesus is interacting with this, this traitor, Judas. It's interesting, as we looked at this text, we've seen that uh, before, that Jesus has predicted that His disciples, they're going to take off, they're just going to leave Him. And, and the disciples' reaction is that they, they really feel that Jesus has been right on a lot of things up to this point, but somehow, I, I don't know if it's the, the outdoors, you know, outside all day long, healing people, or, or just eating late at night, they really feel that He has gotten this part wrong. They're like, there's no way in the world we're going to take off. I mean, Peter is saying, even if we have to die, and they're all chirping in with them and saying, yeah, yeah, we're, we're going to be there. I mean, you've been right on a lot of things, but this somehow, you, you've made a mistake. You, you don't know what's, what we're like. We saw also that Jesus was encouraging them to pray. To, to pray, but instead of praying, they decided to do what felt like it was necessary, which was to sleep. Their eyes were tired, and so they decided to to sleep. Jesus tells them, pray, because you might uh, fall into this temptation, and the temptation is specifically to think that they can deal with life in their own strength. That's the temptation, that they don't need God, that they can do this on their own. What we're going to be looking at is that Christians must constantly realign their life to follow God and His Word, over our traditions and customs. Over our traditions and customs. And it takes a constant realigning, constant looking back to God, looking back to the Scriptures, and changing our course to match up with what God has. Now, I've got three, three simple questions. They're not really points. They're just questions that we can ask from this text. The first one is, why are they coming for Jesus? Why are they coming for Jesus? We see in verse uh, 47 that while he was still speaking, in other words, when uh, Jesus is there telling the disciples, get up, let's be going, behold, the one who betrays me is at hand, verse 46, it's like while he is still saying that, the the speech is still coming out, that uh, while he's still speaking, behold, look, it's a it's a unique word that Mark keeps on uh, Mark, Matthew keeps on using throughout his gospel to kind of point at specific things. Look, behold, it's Judas. Judas is there. Judas, one of uh, one of the twelve, it says, he, he's there present, one of the twelve. Can you imagine all the amazing things Judas has seen? Can you? Imagine all the opportunities of the lessons that he's heard. All the things that he's he's said, uh, that Jesus said, and he has been able to hear those things and, and see the miracles and the signs and the wonders that Jesus has done. He's been there and now he is here leading this group of people and it says that there's a large crowd, a large crowd. He's leading this large crowd and the large crowd has swords and clubs. You would think that they're out there looking for a terrorist? When in the world has Jesus done that? That they're coming with uh, swords and clubs? When in the world could, have, you know, could he have done? And, and who is sending these people? It says that they came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. That, that's who's sending them. That they are pushing this agenda. And we have to ask ourselves why in the world? Why in the world are they coming to arrest Jesus? Why this huge force? Why, why the weapons? What's going on here? It says in verse uh, 48, Now, he who was betraying him... It's an interesting way how Matthew marks this uh, text because he's, he no longer calls him Judas, but now he's the one that is betraying him. It's a participle it describes him. He is the one that is doing this action. He doesn't separate his action from who he is. He is the betrayer. He is the one that turns them in. He is the one that hands them over. That, that's who, how he describes them. And he's saying, hey, Matthew's given this, this time before. It's like we're in this little dark room where he's telling the people what he's going to do. And what he's going to do is he's going to give a sign. And the sign is specifically, he's going to give a kiss. Whoever I kiss. Uh, this is a very interesting word uh, for kiss. It has. Um, it comes from a, a certain word that has this uh, connotation of uh, brotherly love. It has this kind of idea of a, of a deep friendship. Yeah, some have argued that this word is, is a little bit less than, for example, the word for love that we see in John 3:16. But it's this word that appears in, in John chapter uh, 16, verse 27. Uh, where it says that the Father himself loves you. Jesus is talking to his disciples and says that the Father loves them, and it's the same word used. The point that I'm bringing out here is that the sign that Judas wants to give for the person he's going to be betraying is a sign of deep affection. It's not, uh, uh, you know, sometimes we we can use our eyes and it's like, that one one over there. you know, Or, Or some people use their cheek, you know, they're like, Uh, You know, that's the one. No, it's not anything vague like that. He's going to do an expression that shows a deep love and appreciation towards him. And it can also be translated as a kiss. He tells them, that person, I want you to seize him. He'll be the one. And it says immediately, so now we go back to the narrative time. For a moment, We're in the narrative time. Then Matthew jumps out of that to talk about some previous time where they made arrangements for the sign. And now we're here. There Jesus is saying, the one who's betraying me is coming. There comes Judas. And immediately he comes up to him. And Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi. That um, word hail uh, has this kind of greeting. It has this, uh, this kind of, Rejoicing, it has a, a, a deep sense of I'm glad to see you connotation. And uh, I mean, what an expression to give. He's, he's rejoiced, he's happy, he, he is so glad to be seeing Jesus. and then he calls him Rabbi, which has this idea of of a teacher. in what sense is Jesus Judas's teacher? Uh, uh, sometimes uh, a person can have a vocation of being a teacher, but you've never sat under that person. They, they have that profession, that they're a teacher, but, but you've never sat on them. You, you've never learned from them. And maybe in that sense, he's calling him a teacher. Not all the things that he's heard from him, he's never applied to his own life. He, he's distanced from them. And yet, somehow he can go and show great affection towards him. Talk about the hypocrites of hypocrites. How, how do you do this? He, he said to him, Rabbi, and he kissed him. That's yeah, an incredible thing. Why are they there? Why are they coming to Jesus? The reason that they're coming is because they have a hardened heart. And I'll use Judas here. Hardened hearts are callous to signs and wonders. They are. Now, can, can you think about Jesus? Jesus. Um, Uh, He was one of the disciples that was present in Matthew chapter 10 when he has the disciples all together and he commissions them to go out to the lost sheep of Israel. He he wants them to go and and get the lost sheep. Judas is there present when uh, there was the whole multitude of people and they were hungry, and Jesus has compassion on them, and he tells them to sit down. And he takes the food, and he starts just passing out the food after he gave thanks. And as, as he keeps on passing out this food, people keep on receiving, and people keep on eating, and there's leftovers. Judas was there. He saw it. It's not like he heard about it. He saw it. He was part of that. He was there also that night when, when uh, Jesus puts them into the boat and sends them off across the, uh, the, the lake there. And as they're crossing, all of a sudden a storm comes, in, and it's, it's raging, and they're scared. There comes Jesus just walking across the water, you know. And they think it's a ghost. Uh, I've said this before. If it was me, I would have started going, Whoo! you know, I, But I would have played with them for a little bit. Jesus doesn't do that. He tells them it's him, and um, he gets in the boat and calms the water down, right? He calms the water down. And immediately they're on the other side. This is something fantastic that he's seeing. It's not that he's hearing about this, he's there. He's also present in in John chapter 9 uh, when there's the the guy who is blind. You remember that? And and the disciples are there talking and they're like, Who sinned, him or his parents? And and Jesus says, No, this is for my glory. And And he heals the guy and he sees. He was also there present when when the people are wanting to uh, kill him, and he goes and crosses the Jordan. uh, Mary sends somebody to go tell Jesus that Lazarus, the one who he loves, is is sick. And and Jesus decides, purposely decides, knowing that Lazarus is going to die, he decides to wait, and he waits four days. He's dead, and he's buried. And then he says, all right, let's go. Judas was there. He he saw when the stone was removed. And he heard Jesus' voice telling Lazarus to come out. He, He was present for those signs, for those miraculous signs. And not just there for those signs, but he also heard the teachings of Jesus. Can you imagine that? And yet still Judas rejected God and pursued his own way. He still felt that somehow God is still holding out on him and he's got something a little bit better. I mean, he's got 30 pieces of silver. Now as we think about this, that calloused hearts, hardened hearts are calloused to, to God, it might be a little bit discouraging because all this is making its way to Matthew chapter 28 to the Great Commission where we're as we're going out, we're making disciples of all the nations. And we think... If Jesus did all these signs, did all his teaching, and still it did nothing, what hope do I have of reaching the nations? Well, in that of myself, I have no hope at all. I got nothing to offer people. Nothing to help them see the light. It all depends on God working through them and the person accepting that. Now, a person with a hardened heart is calloused to God. Another thing that we see here as we answer this question of why are they after him, their hearts are hardened, but also uh, we see that there cannot be a separation from their actions from who they are. And again, we'll use Judas as the the case here. Uh, Judas is described as the one who betrays. He's the one who hands over Jesus. He's the betrayer. The betrayer is Judas, Judas is the betrayer. They're one and the same. At many times, as we live our life, uh, we, we produce fruit. And when we produce fruit in the flesh, it's called the stench of the flesh. The stench of the flesh. It stinks, it reeks. And sometimes people will point out, hey, you got some stinky fruit there in your life. And the natural reaction that we have is to say, that, that's not mine. That there that's hanging, no, that's not mine. I don't know how that got there. But I confess these doctrines. This is who I am. And the person's like, dude, but you've got this nasty fruit in your life. It doesn't add up. What you're saying and what you're doing doesn't add up. Now, if we want to change our fruit, how do we do that? How does a person change their fruit? They're producing things that are displeasing to God. And people are pointing it out in your life, and you're saying, something's got to happen. What does the person do? Well, the first thing that that person needs to do is accept Christ as their Savior. Until they accept Christ as their Savior, there is no change in the root. The root will continue to produce nasty fruit. But if there is a change in the root, then you can have a good spiritual fruit. And that happens first by trusting Christ as our Savior. The second thing that one has to do is develop a deep, deep relationship with God. Now, sometimes when we have shared experiences, uh, we can can, uh, somehow use what would you call it um, a shorter way of expressing ourselves? Like if uh, two people have gone through the same experience, you say, Boy, I went through uh, Hurricane Harvey. Oh, and the other person goes, oh, yeah, and you understand, there it was just raining over and over and over, and you don't have to say much, anything else, you just go, oh, and the other person says, oh, yeah, oh, you know, and that's it. Sometimes when we come to scriptures, because God has humbled himself to use human language, and we have this shared experience of these words, and we see the the syntax, and we understand the subject and the verb and so forth, we might have the temptation, it'd be a foolish temptation, but to reduce God to being knowable exhaustively. And he's not. He's infinite. This reveals him. We can know his word, but there's so much more. It'd be foolish to think that because I went through a class of doctrine that somehow I know God. It's a deep relationship that takes years of cultivating through the Word. Now, as we get to know God in a deep way, we have to then start putting that into practice. It's not enough to just have a bunch of information. Hopefully no one here has has just accepted Christ as their Savior, and they're like, I don't need that walking with the Lord stuff. Hopefully you haven't accepted Christ as your Savior and started developing your relationship with the Lord, but you said, well, I'm not going to put it into practice. I don't need that part. Yes, you do. It's putting that into practice. It's not just about knowing abstract knowledge. It should have a change in your life. And if there's no change, you don't really know. If you're still living the same after reading the Scriptures, something's wrong. You have to go back to step one. Now, what else do you do after you put it into practice? You start teaching others. You start teaching others, not, you're not not teaching them the text, you teach them the God through the text. God has revealed himself through this text, and you get to know God. Many people plateau in their life because they never start to invest their life into other people. They, they get saved, they start knowing God, they start putting a little bit into practice, and then they go the rest of their life just plateaued here because they never invest their life into the life of another person. Now, if you want to do something really creative and crazy, take that last step and uh, go overseas. Go to a, a place that has a different culture and has a different language, and then start investing your life in the life of other people there. That, uh, that's what we call missions. It, 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 be involved in somebody. It, it's crazy. How do you communicate these truths To to somebody with a different system of values? How do you communicate these things to to other people? It's not just saying the Lord's Prayer, it's much more to have that change root. We have so many people that say, Oh, I believe. But you look at their life and you say, I don't think you're believing the same thing. Something's going on. And maybe they are believing the right thing, but they're not putting these other things into practice. They're not getting to know God. They're they're not applying those truths to their own life. They're not teaching other people. (laughs) And they're definitely not considering foreign missions. They don't have time for that. Now, why are they like this? Because their hearts are hardened. That's why they're coming after Jesus. Now, the second question is, uh, why does Jesus call a traitor his friend? It's kind of a, a weird thing. I mean, we saw with uh, Marwan, for all practical purposes, he probably was killed. And uh, we we don't treat traitors very nicely either. Why would he call him a friend? Look, it says in verse 50. It says, and Jesus said to him, as in to Judas, friend, somebody who has something in common with. I mean, it almost seems like a scene from Mr. Rogers or something, you know? Uh, it, everything just looks so hunky-dory here. Everything just looks so great. He comes, Hail Rabbi, hello, friend. And he says, Do what you have come for. It's a, it's a unique expression. It has this idea of um, I am at your disposal. Uh, whatever you need, I'm here for you. In Venezuela, uh, you go to a store... And when you go in, they have this expression as, I'm at your service. And uh, it's just a thing that people say. And usually when people would go on missions trips from the States to Venezuela, and people would be like, I'm at your service. They're like, boy, they sure are nice here in this store. <laughs> I'm like, they're nice at every store, you know? It's just a cultural thing. What, what is Jesus doing here? Is he being sarcastic? Is Jesus being sarcastic with, with telling him he's his friend? yeah, I know why you're here. Well, we could maybe argue that he's being sarcastic, especially through all the anguish he went through through praying. You know, how, how, how do you come here and say, uh, Hail, Rabbi, I'm so glad to see you, teacher. Maybe he's being sarcastic, but it's that next phrase that kind of disqualifies it from being a sarcastic statement. It, it disqualifies it because he says, after he says friend, he says, I'm at your service. What is it that you want to do? How can I serve you? He's not being sarcastic. We see that uh, Jesus calls him friend because Jesus has come to call traitors and rebels to himself. That's what he's come to do. Who, Who does Jesus call? Does he call those who have potential? I can see down the corridor of time, this will be an asset for me. No. Does he call those who who have helped themselves, they've bettered themselves, they've been through a program, they've, they've gone through the 12 steps, and now their life is better, and he says, that person I'll call. No. Who does God call? He calls the lost. No. Matthew uh, 10, 6-7. He tells them, Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel to preach. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It gives hope to know that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It gives you the opportunity to repent and to turn. Who is he after? The lost. Not only is he after the lost, but he's also after the weary. Matthew 11, 28-29. The invitation is, Uh, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He comes to call traitors and rebels and those who are weary and those who are tired. That's who he comes. He's not being sarcastic. Yet there is a hardened heart that will Rejected. Now, maybe you're at a point here where in your life you think, man, I really messed up. And you might be really discouraged. Like you've done some stuff and it's not on Facebook yet, but probably by the end of the service it will be. And it's going to be humiliating. I mean, it's just going to be humiliating. There is hope in Christ because He came to save rebels and mess-ups like us. There's an encouragement in that, that He has come for, for sinners to give life. Now, our third question is, why does Jesus not do anything? Why does He not do anything? Why is He so passive? And we see that in verses 51 56 here we see verse 51 it says and behold look at this that one of those who was with jesus so it's not like some rogue guy coming in you know he's on the side of jesus he's there with jesus this guy comes and he uh, is reaching and draws out his sword or dagger and he strikes the uh, slave of the high priest And in that, he cuts off his ear. Did he aim for the ear? He'd be quite an impressive guy if he could aim for the ear. Maybe he was trying to cut off his head and only got the ear. I don't know. It seems a weird thing to cut off. If you are going to cut off, you know, it's like, ha-ha, I got you, I got your ear, you know. It just seems kind of weird. Uh, Was it purposeful? I don't know if it was really purposeful. But that's what ended up happening. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. That putting back is is a change of mind, a change of of way of thinking. It's a unique thing that no longer be engaged in this activity, but change it to another activity. Specifically, he he tells them that all those who take the sword uh, shall perish by the sword. What an interesting statement. You would think that Jesus would be thrilled that here's somebody who had said that they're not going to leave. If they have to die, they'll be there with Jesus. You would think that he, Jesus would be like, I was wrong. Here's somebody standing up for me. And yet Jesus doesn't congratulate the person. He doesn't praise them. But rather tells them to put it away. Then in verse 53, he says, Or do you uh, think that I cannot appeal to my Father? That appeal is to make a request, to request something of the Father. don't you understand that I have this ability to appeal to Him? And, And He will at once, not later on, not that He'll think about it, not that He'll contemplate it, not that He'll go into some type of council with the Holy Spirit and just them two, I don't know, can... Can we do this? I don't know. Jesus says, at once, he will put at my disposal twelve legions of angels. Seventy-two thousand angels. That's incredible. Can you imagine what seventy-two thousand angels would do to a mob with swords and clubs? It'd It'd be epic. It'd be incredible to see that fight scene. He says, don't you understand this? He says, verse 54, How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled? What? He's worried about fulfilled Scripture? What what about His comfort? What what about His integrity? What about, uh, you know, not being put out? He has more of an interest in fulfilling the Scriptures, the Word of God, than to be comfortable It says that it it must happen this way. Then he says in verse 55, At that time Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? What in the world had Jesus done that could deserve this type of treatment? Well, earlier that week he did go into the temple and start turning over tables. You remember that? He made a, a whip and then started driving people out. And maybe they saw his strength and so forth and they're like, oh, we're not going you know, to take any chances with this. I mean, the guy was turning over tables, whipping people around. Um, we're going to go with swords. But is that really what's motivating this hatred, this antagonism against him? Why doesn't he do the same thing? I mean, if he could weave together a whip really quick and start doing that in the temple, imagine what he could have that whole night praying. I mean, he could have had a whole bunch more stuff that he could have done. He says, are you coming against a robber? And then he says, every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures of the prophets. Again, there's this total dependence on God and His will and not His own convenience. And the end result is that the disciples left him and fled. They take off. They can't be found. They've taken off. Why why does Jesus not do anything? Because he is not going to accomplish human purposes. He's going to accomplish a divine purpose. Now, uh, sometimes we can fall into this thing of trying to accomplish divine purposes with human effort. It's a sad thing. We try to see God's will, God's love, God's mercy, and we try to use human effort to establish that. And it doesn't end up really well. The temptation that uh, Jesus told the disciples to be praying so that they're not going to fall into is that they can make this work, this life work, on human effort. It's the temptation that we always have. It's a dependence on God. Now, you see here that there's this one person, and he is with Jesus. He's not some rogue guy. He's with Jesus. And yet, even though being with Jesus, he still hasn't understood that there is a divine purpose in all of this. He's still going to use a human endeavor to try to do his own will, which is incredible. He is not submitting to God. What needs to happen here is a complete dependence on God. Now, what is a complete dependence on God? A complete dependence on God is where one obeys uh, God's revealed word. What He's revealed. God tells us to work. God tells us to love your wife. God tells us to love your husband. It says to honor your parents, uh, to become more holy. It's obeying. That's a complete dependence. It also means obeying what you can infer from the revealed character of God in Scriptures. So maybe it doesn't say, thou shalt not smoke, right? Right? Uh, But you can get some inferences from God's Scripture and God's Word and say, "Hmm, maybe I I won't do that. Maybe I'll stop that. Maybe I'll put that down. It's obeying what is revealed and then obeying also what can be inferred. It's, It's going with wisdom and knowing what the next right move is. Now, Jesus did nothing because he was obeying the will of the Father to save humanity. See, it was a lot bigger than just His own comfort. Jesus presents a counterfactual. He could have called, and his father would have sent, but he didn't do it. It's a counterfactual. Jesus did not call. He had the ability to do something different. Yeah, he had the power to do something different. But Jesus decides not to change lanes. He does, he decides not to change plans because there is something much bigger than his comfort and his safety involved in this. Now, that just blows my mind. Uh, Because so many times we think that uh, if God's going to save, he's going to save through keeping us all intact. Or or maybe Jesus didn't require the legions to come because he didn't really anticipate that they were going to really, really crucify him. Maybe he thought that they were going to fake crucify him. Or maybe they weren't really going to punish him as they did and, and scourge him and, and beat him. No, Jesus knew, but there was something much bigger going on here than just his comfort, and that was to save humanity. God is sovereignly omniscient in control of his creation, every part of it, and He could have destroyed them. It's interesting here; they come and put their hands on him. He. Creates and sustains all of creation. All he had to do was stop sustaining for a second. and Their molecules would have gone flying every which way. But there's a bigger purpose here. Sometimes we go through hardships and difficulty. Or we see hardships in other people and our kids and other around us. and, And we think, what's the point? But God is working all things for his glory. For his purpose and for the good of those who love Him. God is working all things, even something as tragic as this. Even though He's got the power to change the situation, He's not going to do it because there is a bigger purpose, which is God's will. What would we do when we come to a situation we don't like? Are we going to be arrogant enough to say, God, you explain it to me? Or do we humble ourselves and yield to what God is doing something much bigger than what we can ever understand. Christians must constantly realign their life to follow God and His Word over our traditions and customs. That's what they got offended about. Jesus didn't follow their traditions, and He didn't follow their customs. What do you do with a traitor? Well, remember Marwan? All likelihood, he was killed. What does God do with traitors? He calls them, gives them an opportunity to repent, to turn. And that is a a wonderful thought. The question is, what will you do? Maybe you've been running from the Lord. Maybe you have never accepted the Lord. Maybe you accepted Christ and you started learning, but you've kind of fizzled out. There's no growth. There's no discipleship. And missions is nowhere on the radar because you're not teaching it here. You're not going to teach it over there. God calls us. And what we have to do is not harden our hearts, but accept that. Let's pray. Father, I pray now as we examine our hearts and the Spirit lumens our minds that we will apply this text to our lives. Father, there might be some here that have never accepted Christ as their Savior. Oh, Father, they have a bunch of information, but they've never put their faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And I pray that today will be the day of salvation. Father, I pray for other of us here that we have the stench of the flesh because we're not continuing to grow. I pray that we can repent of that and, and, and humble ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you please stand with me and we'll sing this song of invitation. If you'd like to come and pray, you can. At this time, we'll conclude our invitation. Rocky has an announcement, and then uh, Charles will lead us in our last song.
1: We have Caleb coming forward to uh, announce that he would like to be baptized. He's accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. And if you agree with that, give a hearty amen. Okay, and afterwards he's gonna stand up front and uh, with his dead feel, and they'll come by and uh, shake his hand. Welcome to our membership. Let's sing together.